This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Hour two on the horizon. Joe Haggerty from Boston Hockey Now. Eric Engels from Sportsnet. We'll talk about the Montreal Canadiens and Jeff Gordon revolutionizing things in La Belle Provence. And Gianna Hand the, uh, from the Philadelphia Inquirer talking about the Philadelphia Flyers. The big one yesterday. The scratching of Travis Sanheim. The injury the Travis Konechny, and the winning streak of Sammy Erson. Lots to get to with the Philadelphia Flyers. In the meantime, uh, here to talk about the Ottawa Senators' uh, tough loss against the Boston Bruins. It's always weird saying tough loss against the Bruins because what do you expect? They're kind of the top team in the NHL, and they're a buzzsaw. Ian Mendez from The Athletic joining me now. Ian, thanks so much for hanging in there. How are you today, pal? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. So uh, I want to focus on the good here first and then some questions about the future and the trade deadline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I want to preface this by saying, you know, Ian, most of the predictions that I have are wrong, like way, way off, like, you know, a called looking at the third strike bad. Um, but Tim Stutzla, Tim Stutzla of the Ottawa Senators, uh, I was in Mannheim for a few days in the summer and hung out with him for a couple of days and just like looking at like how different he sort of transformed his body and knowing how elite an athlete he is, I couldn't help but thinking this guy's poised for some great things this year with the Ottawa Senators. And one of the things that I wondered, at what point, Ian, would we be saying he's the best player on the team, period? And I wonder, are we there now? Are we at the place where we say Tim Stutzla is the best player on this team? Ooh, it's a it's a great question, isn't it? And you know, I know I know you and Elliot spent time with him uh, in Germany and kind of got. I think he he went next level this summer, this past summer, Jeff. Like in terms of yeah. his, oh, his yeah. workout, yeah, you know, like he just <laughs> he was ready. And uh, you know, he signed that contract. Look, there was a lot of people outside of this market when Ottawa signed Tim Stutzla to the eight year deal in September. There were a lot of people looking at each other saying what are you doing? Like this guy hasn't done anything. Well, how are you signing him? And I got to tell you, if they didn't lock yeah. him up to that deal, then I feel like the number would be North of nine right now, the way he's played. I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I you know, he ended up signing for, you know, uh, about eight, eight point three or whatever it is. And so it's a great question. And I think it's right now, it's a flip of the coin with him and Brady Kachuk. And part of that is I think yeah. Jeff Brady has taken his offensive game to the next level where I think, you know, last year he scored 30 goals. This year he's going to score 30 again. Um, like, I, I, I think that they're pretty much neck and neck. But what I do feel comfortable in saying is I think we're just scratching the surface on Tim Stutzel. Like, I, I think he's got – I think coming into this year I thought, you know, maybe he's got 80-point potential in this league. I now believe he's got 100-point mm. potential. And, and, and I think the sky's yeah. the limit for him. And he's the first guy I've watched that I think, you know what, if he stays here in Ottawa – he's got a chance to kind of break some of these franchise records here, goals, assists, points, all the things that Daniel Albertson has. You know, and it's almost as if, you know, almost from, I don't want to see like game one or anything like that, because you got to learn how to, you know, how, how the league works and what you can do in it. But even watching, you know, Stutzla in that first season, it became pretty obvious that even though the production might not be there initially, like Ian, you watched all the games. You've seen, you know, Stutzla's entire career. True or false, in most, if not all of the games early on, you saw a flash or you saw a glimpse of just how good this guy could be. I remember watching Ottawa games and going like, yeah, you know what, the little round black thing, he couldn't put it over the red line, but... There were moments where you say to yourself, "Okay, this guy is elite. I just can't wait until he puts this entire thing together." Like we kind of, we kind of saw this from the first season, didn't we? Yeah, we did, and, and you know, it's remarkable because I think when you go back now, if it, you know, and hindsight's twenty twenty, and now I think everyone would go back and 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 you know take Tim Stutes the first overall in that twenty twenty draft, but he kind of fell into Ottawa's yeah. lap, and even you know when, when he came here, I think a lot of people thought. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Are they kind of just kind of force-feeding this kid into the NHL? And if you remember, like DJ Smith, the first year that Tim Stutzel played, the year that you're kind of talking about where you saw some flashes, that yeah. was the year of the all-Canadian all pandemic division. And yep. they, they wanted to put him, uh, Jeff, a little bit at center ice, but they were worried he was going to get eaten alive. Because look, think about it. Every night it would be Matthews and Tavares and McDavid and Dreisaitl and you know, go go down the list yeah. of all those elite centermen, uh, Shifley and, and whatnot, and they, they, they wanted to be careful with him. But you're right. You would see the little flashes 
uh, of, of brilliance. And it's like he just needed to gain some strength. And now it's the confidence. Now this guy has the confidence. And it's, uh, boy, and he, he was first star of the week last week in the NHL. It just feels like every night he's doing that one thing to pull you out of your seat. And that's rare because uh, it's such a tough league. Okay, so Pierre Dorian last week talking about, you know, we're going to wait and see, you know, up until the Ranger game, which is on March the 2nd, uh, the day before a trade deadline, to make their decision whether, you know, uh, they're going to add or they're going to subtract, they're going to be buyers, they're going to be sellers, et cetera. And we kind of all looked a little bit sideways at Dorian and said, I know you can't come out right now and say everything must go. I get it. You still have to sell tickets. But the Ottawa Senators are are looking to sell off here, right? Like a loss against Chicago uh, last week. I know they you know they pounded the St. Louis Blues and a, uh, a loss against Boston yesterday. This is a team that's looking to unload assets come March 3rd, right? I Like, I think so. And the weird thing is, Pierre Dorian said, look, we could be a buyer and a seller. And... <laughs> Look, I think if you were if you were really asking yourself if you're going to be a playoff team, like wouldn't Tyler Mott just be a good own rental, so to speak? Yes. Like, I kind of think he would yes. be like like you know. So that was a little bit of an indication to me that they're not that they've given up on the playoffs, but that they're eyeing towards next year. Mott was a UFA. The guy that they brought in, Julian Gauthier, uh, is a, a, a you know he's under team control for another year, so you know, considerably yep. could come back. So that was kind of like one of those. Hmm. I, I'm not quite sure what you're doing here. But the question becomes, look, this isn't like years past. Remember every year, Jeff, we would get to the trade deadline and be like, Ottawa is like the team to watch, right? They had Stone and they had Pajot and Carlson and Duchesne. And <laughs> yeah. Like every year, right, Ottawa became yeah. the team. Well, this year yeah. when you look at the Ottawa lineup and you look at the, the list of pending UFAs, it's not exactly, uh, you know, a list of uh, desirable assets. I, I would argue maybe Cam Talbot would be the one – piece that other teams might be interested in but you got to remember he missed the first month of the season uh with with kind of i guess uh, yeah. a rib injury and he's missed about the last month with a lower body injury so now you're wondering how many teams would be all in on a 35 year old goalie who's got you know i guess question marks about whether or not he can play that that's the only guy other than that i don't really see them Having these assets that, wow, they're, they're going to get a ton. They already kind of said they're not going to trade Travis Hamannick either. So I think we're left to think that, yeah, yeah they, they might move the Tyler, well, they, they move Tyler Mott, maybe Austin Watson, maybe Nick Holden, but there's nothing here that I would say is going to fetch you anything more than you know, kind of a mid to late round draft pick. I'll, I'll be honest with you, Ian. When I woke up this morning, the, the first thing I checked when I looked at my email to see if I got an, an email from the Ottawa Senators announcing that Austin Watson has been moved to the Pittsburgh Penguins after watching what Pittsburgh went through last night, um, getting pushed around by the Islanders uh, the, the way that they did. Um, okay, uh, off the ice. So as, as best you can, because we're all you know waiting for this sale. I, I don't know what stage it's in. Uh, I don't know anything by way of of timeline for all of this. Uh, I do know that a lot of people in the organization, you know, were given the option either take a, a one year contract extension or you know take a take a gamble uh, with new new ownership and and see if you can put together a new deal. And the majority of people all all took the one year extension uh, and the guarantee. How's the mood around the team with a new owner? on the horizon we don't know who it is nothing's clear yet but we do know there's going to be a new owner on the horizon what's the mood around the organization you know i think this is going to be really interesting jeff because it looks like this is going to go kind of go right to the end of the regular like if i had to guess right now like it's looking like maybe early april they kind of uh, you know saw this you know build like the most telling comments on the sale of the Ottawa senators came uh, by virtue of Bill Daly last week on, on, on the McCowan and Shannon podcast, where he, I, I had not heard anybody from the league kind of give that kind of detailed uh, update on yeah. where things are at. And so they're basically at the point right now, Jeff, they're taking bids. They're going to be another round of bids, I think, into March. So I'm thinking maybe early April is when you get a conditional sale. That's the time when I think you're going to see the nerves start to to come to the forefront for, for people that work there, right, in the upper levels of management, whether it's hockey operations, marketing, sales, that's when you wonder how this is going to go. Are we going to get a Tom Dundon situation where Tom, remember Tom went in in Carolina and was like, "Hey, uh, Ron Francis, you're out of here." Bill Peters resigned. Uh, think of uh, you know Jeff Vinnick. Uh, it was the other one I yep. was thinking of. It was two months. Jeff Vinnick went in, and I think it was Rick Cockett and um, uh, Brian Lawton out. 
um, right away. And yep. Steve Eiserman uh, in, Guy Boucher in. So I, it, it's just a question of are we going to see that right away? But I think we'll get the answer to that at some point in the spring. Like, I, like this can't go – like because the draft is looming in June, you have to make a decision, I would think, yep. by like early to the middle of May on who your hockey ops is going to be. All right. Um, Alex DeBrinkett, uh, it, it sounds like there's not going to be any type of decision until, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the, the new owners are, are, are installed here. What's your spidey sense tell you about the Alex DeBrinkett situation? I mean, he looks like, listen, the, the, the release is still there. The shot is still there. I mean, there might be some questions about how, you know, how he gets there in the zone, but... Um, your thoughts on how this Alex DeBrinkett situation plays itself out? Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think Alex DeBrinkett is going to have all the leverage in the world. Like, he's going to go in, and it's not, it's going to be somewhat similar to Matthew Kachuk in Calgary last year, mm. which is you're going into the last year of a deal. It's essentially a walk year. you got a qualifying offer. In DeBrinkett's case, it's going to be $9 million. This is This is where the, the play – look, we saw it with Matthew Kachuk. He, he went to the Flames and said – Look, I let's just do what's best uh, in the best interest of everybody here. Yeah, uh, there'll be an opportunity, I think, for Alex to bring it to do that. Either he I, I, like I let me put it this way: I don't see a scenario where he just signs his qualifying offer and then they kind of wait and see. You know, kinda, we saw that with Mark Stone in Ottawa. I mean, you basically walked him out the door. Yeah. Uh, you can't do that with an asset like Alex to bring it in which you gave up a, a seventh overall pick for him. So I think that the time for the Brinkett would be around the draft. Again, which would be, do you sign him to a long-term extension? Do you trade him? There's no rush on it. And I do think he likes it here. I think he legitimately likes it here. And for all the consternation about, oh, DeBrinkett's not scoring, like the guy's probably going to score 30 goals this year in, in a quote-unquote down year uh, for him. So I still think he's got it. I think he's just been the, the victim of some awful luck. Uh, but it's going to be an interesting contract to see. Like, is Tim Stutzla the ceiling for Ottawa? Do they say no one's making more than Tim? Because if that's the case, maybe Alex DeBrinkett says, I can make $9 million somewhere else. That, that, to me, is going to be the interesting thing in all of this. Uh, th- that certainly will. Uh, one final thought here. Um, I liked it. I know a lot of people had uh, a little bit of a hard time with it, although I usually default to people in the marketplace and say, do you like this? Do you support it? Um, the Chris Neal night, when I have a, a lot of time for Chris Neal on the ice, uh, even more time for Chris Neal off the ice as well. Just your thoughts, because when we think of the Ottawa Senators and we think of faces of the franchise, certainly we think of Daniel Alfredson. Uh, he comes to mind and other, you know, wonderful players, whether it's, you know, Chris Phillips and Wade Redden and that era of players with, you know, Hosa and Havlad, et cetera. Um, but Chris Neal has kind of like been through all of it and through a lot of different eras and a lot of different regimes and made his money the hard way and really, you know, embraced the community and was embraced by the community. Uh, Ian, your thoughts on, on Chris Neal? Yeah, and, and I understand from the outside perspective, you would look at the statistical line of Chris Neal and say, how on earth does this guy warrant a jersey retirement? And I'm sure that we probably look the same way, Jeff. Uh, Ken Danico has his number, right? Retired in New Jersey. And you would look at Ken Danico's yep. numbers yep. and you say, well, boy, Ken Danico. Well, sometimes players mean more than, than the stat line. And, and, and I think in Chris Neal's case, you got to remember, this is a franchise that has watched so many players walk out the door because they just they just didn't want to be here. And in, and in the case of Chris yeah. Neal, it's the same as Chris Phillips. Like, to me, Jeff, once they made the decision to retire Chris Phillips' number, um, you had to do Chris Neal. Like, they, they, they check a lot of the same boxes. Yeah. You know, 1,000 games, great in the community, stayed through thick and thin. All the things that you kind of uh, – with the except, obviously, Phillips being a first-round pick, it's a little bit different, but – but beyond that, I think once yep. you made that decision, the precedent was set. And I don't have a problem with it. Like, we only have 30 years of history in Ottawa. And I think you've got to celebrate it. You've got to celebrate the people that uh, wanted to be here, be a part of this community. Like, I, I'm a big fan of the Ring of Honor idea, too. Like, I want to see Jason Spezza in yep. the Ring of Honor here. I, I want to see Jacques Martin in the Ring of Honor. Like, it's time to start celebrating uh, the history of this franchise is as colorful and weird and wacky as it's been at times. And then Chris Neal has been a big part <laughs> of it. And I, I don't, I don't really have a problem yeah. uh, with, with him doing it just because of what he did in this community off the ice. I'm with you hundred uh, percent. Ian, always a treat having you on. Thanks so much for sharing expertise uh, and your perspective. Always appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day, sir. And, and thanks so much oh. again for coming on.
Anytime, Jeff. My pleasure. Ian Mendez from The Athletic covers the Ottawa Senators. Tough one against the Boston Bruins, but let's just be honest. Everybody has a tough one against the Boston Bruins. Speaking of the Bruins, uh, Joe Haggerty coming up from Boston Hockey Now in a couple of moments. We'll talk about David Krejci and the 1,000-game plateau. Nice pregame ceremony for him there before the 3-1 win against the Ottawa Senators. Um, David Pasternak, ho-hum, hits the 40-goal mark. Eh, third time in his career, no big deal. And uh, what's happening with Vladislav Gavrikov and the Boston Bruins? Any closer? Haggerty weighs in in moments. Hour two of the Merrick Show is on the horizon. Random player coming up as well. I think you'll like this one. You're watching on Sportsnet 360, listening across the Sportsnet radio network. Come back in a moment. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptors Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Joe Haggerty here coming up in a, a couple of moments. We get on the Boston Bruins page. Eric Engels talks to us about a really nice piece that he's written at sportsnet.ca about how Jeff Gordon is revolutionizing the entire Montreal Canadiens front office, staff, the analytics department, development group, all of it. And uh, Gianna Hahn from the Philadelphia Inquirer. We'll get on the Philadelphia Flyers page after a uh, pretty big win last night uh, against the Calgary Flames. Uh, we saw them lose um, a player in the process, scratch a defenseman as well, and Joel Farabee's minutes down around three minutes and change. Uh, in the meantime, time for the random player of the day. Here's how this thing works. Uh, you think of a player. It could be anybody. It goes through your brain in between your ears, off to the email machine, send it in, jmshow at sportsnet.ca, and we will do our best to get that player on the program. Matt, you handle these affairs. Who are we talking about today? Yeah, uh, this one actually uh, a double send. Uh, this one, uh, Juha Whiting, uh, former LA King, um, also pl- plied his trade uh, in junior hockey here in Canada. This one submitted by Mark Sargent yeah. and Jens Jensen, who emails us from Sweden. Love it. So Juha Whiting uh, is a Finnish-born Swedish player. So he was born in Finland, moved to Sweden, and grew up there. The first time that I ever saw or remember seeing Juha Viding was in the Canada Cup 1976. I was too young for 72. 76 was the first real big one for me. And I remember being a kid, Maddie, and watching Boreas Salman get introduced before the game against Canada, stand on the blue line alone. And it was a standing ovation at Maple Leaf Gardens. And it lasted a long time. And Salman seemed, you know, quite uncomfortable. You know, he'd only been a Maple Leaf, I think, for two, maybe three seasons at that point. But just the, uh, the, the level of adoration... Uh, that fans had for Borea Salming, I think was a little bit overwhelming for him. And although I don't think Viding was the next player out, I think it was like the next two or three players out was Juha Viding was part of the starting lineup for that uh, game against Canada. I believe Canada won that one uh, for nothing. And I remember Viding wearing these red gloves, like red beaten up gloves. I remember saying to myself, well, the guy plays for the Los Angeles Kings. He's wearing the Trey Kroner colors here, but he's wearing these red old beaten up gloves. Someone out there knows the story behind that. I don't. If you do, please get in touch with me. My DMs are open. Yuha uh, Viding, uh, as you mentioned, came to the uh, the Western Hockey League, played for the Brandon Wheat Kings. And I can't remember why we were talking about Jake Milford a couple of weeks ago, Maddie, but Jake Milford was a general manager of the Wheat Kings, and he brought Viding over along with, I think, two or three other Swedes. Um, Viding was the only one that really stuck. Now, he was on a line with Bill Fairburn and Cal Swanson, and they might have been the best line in all of junior hockey. Viding was a, at that point, physical specimen, big, strong, skilled, and could skate like nobody else. Uh, in all of junior hockey. Um, Played with the Rangers, the Kings. By the way, Brandon at that point was a junior affiliate for the New York Rangers. Like there was the Kitchener Rangers in the then OHA, now OHL. In the Western League, the Rangers affiliate was Brandon. Um, So he started with the Rangers, uh, ended up getting traded to the Los Angeles Kings in a deal with Rael Lemieux in exchange for Ted Irvin, who you may or may not know is the father 
uh, professional wrestler Chris Jericho. Also played for the Cleveland Barons and the WHA for the Edmonton Oilers. They traded him to Indianapolis in exchange for Bill Goldsworthy, but he chose to retire instead, moved to the farm in the Okanagan Valley, and passed away. Uh, serious health complications, died in Kelowna in 1984 at the age of 37. And before there was the uh, the Triple Crown line in Los Angeles, there was the hotline, a really good line with Bob Barry and Mike Corrigan. So final thing, so I, I texted with one of Veeding's teammates um, from the Los Angeles Kings Day, and this is what this gentleman sent back last night about Veeding. He said he was a physical specimen, he was like a smaller version of Matt Sundin. He was a gifted skater, great shot, tough enough. Problem was, he never trained. He was always overweight. He ate and drank. I believe that's what eventually killed him. He loved Bob Fulford, uh, the coach. His number one buddy was Bob Barry. I just mentioned they played together. And skating endurance in skating endurance drills. He would lap some of our players. Nice guy, easygoing, didn't want a lot of responsibility, just wanted to stay in his lane and do his job, but was capable of much, much more. A Swedish pioneer in the 70s in the NHL. We think about Borja Salming and we think about players like Inga Hammerstrom as well. Um, some legends from before who had brief flirtations in the NHL, but Juha Vieding, uh, I really hope, doesn't get lost in the annals of time. Um, Swedish trained uh, and brought in uh, through junior hockey into the NHL. That is the random player of the day, Matty Marchese, the great late Juha Vieding, who left us far too soon, Matty, far too soon. He did. Uh, the thing on the gloves, could it have been the Cleveland Barons gloves that he was wearing? Because he played with them in 76-77. Could have been. Could have been could have been Cleveland Barons gloves, but they were like really beaten up too. I don't know. I got I got to go back and and watch. I remember when Boria passed away. I remember going to watch the ovation, um, and seeing Veeding's gloves. But I got to go back and it, they might have been the Cleveland Barons gloves. I thought it might have been from a club team in Sweden. I don't know, um, but it could have been Barons because yeah, you're right. He did end up playing there for was it one season. He played with Cleveland. Half a season. He, by the way, he uh, he met. He was a half a season. He um he he met and married someone from Brandon. So when he came over, he met his uh, future wife in in junior hockey. Anyway, there he is, the uh, the late great Juha Veeding, today's random player of the day. Your chance to nominate the random player of the day, and uh, actually make Maddie and I do some work for a change. Uh, JM Show at Sportsnet.ca is the email address. Or listen, man, my DMs are open. Just send it along. Uh, Joe Haggerty from Boston Hockey now talking about the Boston Bruins, the Buzzsaw, the Juggernaut, who are still not done adding to this already impressive roster. Joe Haggerty with me now. Hags, how are you today, pal? Hey, Merrick, what's going on? Let me throw out a random uh, player of the day for the future, Dougie Dowell. You guys can look him up and, uh, and, uh, and Dougie, wax poetic about him. Ro- that guy was so tough. And that guy took on all comers. I got a, I got a soft spot in my heart for Dougie Dowell, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was at the beginning of when I covered the Bruins. I just remember he wasn't the biggest guy. He was actually pretty small. He was tough as nails. Ultimate uh, respect kind yep. of guy. He would throw him with everybody. Uh, Dougie, wow, I haven't heard that name in years. But, yeah, he was uh, he was a Rob. He was one of those guys that was kind of like <laughs> – like you remember how um how Ryan Vandenbush never won every fight, but you always knew you were in a fight when you fought Ryan. Like he got a little piece of you, even if he lost a fight. Dougie Dowell was kind of that way because he was such a gamer in in all of his scraps. Anyhow, um, thanks for the way back machine with Dougie Dowell. Appreciate that one. How about uh, how about David Krejci and the one thousand one thousand games? Speaking of way back machines, I was I'll, I'll tell you I was really happy when he came back. Um, he's always one of my favorite players. Uh, real good right hand shot. You know he's not your first line center. He's your second line center. Um, really versatile, and I love guys that in this day and age aren't burners. Like no one's comparing this guy to Connor McDavid or Dylan Larkin uh, or Martin yep. Natchez or anyone like that. But he's just such an elite level thinker, and he just like he goes to prove like you can think your way to a thousand games in the NHL. That's just the way that David Krejci's always played. Celebrating number game number one thousand. Your thoughts on the career of David Krejci? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there's a few things about him that, that stick out. Definitely, as you said, um, 
certainly not the fastest guy, but like the intelligence and the skill, like nobody throws a saucer pass like David Krejci. Uh, very few people think yeah. the game like David Krejci can see the, the passing lanes and, and the ways to create plays. Uh, like he does. There are a few people like Krejci that have the confidence in their own playmaking and their own skill level to slow the game down instead of constantly going faster, faster, faster. You know, it seems like that's something we yeah. see nowadays. Everybody wants to just, you know, take it to three extra gears and keep going faster and faster instead of, you know, slowing things down, curling around with the puck, really slowing the pace down to his pace to create plays. You know, he does all that stuff. And I think sometimes it's underappreciated. Certainly, I think. You know, his defensive abilities and his abilities to be a really excellent two-way center as a, as a you know, a second-line center and a top-six center in the NHL for as long as he's played uh, is definitely underrated. And the one thing that always strikes me about Krejci, just from knowing him personally, uh, is, is it's, it's funny to me and it's amusing to me to watch him on a day like yesterday because he is so damn uncomfortable when the spotlight is on him. And when like everybody's mm-hmm. throwing credit at him and he's getting ovations and they're talking about his career and this big number that he put up, uh, this milestone, he, he wants to deflect and he's very happy sort of, uh, you know, he's always been happy with Bergeron getting all the attention and him just going out there every day and, and being great and being an excellent player. And, you know, the guy that steps up in the playoffs and the guy that, you know, does things unheralded uh, and without a lot of credit yeah. and glory. And, you know, every once in a while for that guy to be put on the pedestal and be thrown that attention and, you know, have the fans give him the ovation. And, and oh, by the way, like a little known fact, like his wife and his kids being there with uh, him yesterday, uh, you know, to, to celebrate the thousand games and to get the gifts from the Bruins. They've all lived in South Carolina this entire year while his kids have been in school. So he's up here playing in Boston mm. while his wife and his kids are down in the South for most of the year and aren't up here in Boston with him while he's grinding it out during the regular season. So that was an extra special thing for him, too, to during school vacation week, have his kids up here hanging out with him as well, um, you know, while he was getting feted by the Boston Bruins and the fan base. So, like, there's a few things going on behind the scenes when you know him. Uh, that went into that day and that uh, whole thing being extra special and, and kind of a treat to see him uh, prodded out into the spotlight yeah. where he rarely likes to be. But, you know, <laughs> he's the kind of guy that deserves all the credit that's going his way. I love it. Like, he's one of my favorite players. I I, I love it. I love watching him. I love watching players. That is, I just mentioned Borea Salming a second ago and, and flashing back to, to video of 76 standing on the blue line for Trey Croner before they're playing Team Canada, standing ovation from 15,000, 16,000 at Maple Leaf Gardens. And you cannot think of an athlete who's more in, un, uncomfortable in a moment uh, than Borea Salming was at that <laughs> point. Here, here's my question about Krejci Hags is... What did Jim Montgomery do to quote unquote get him back? Like, not like get him back, like physically bring him back here. That's all Sweeney. But I look at a player like Hampus Lindholm, okay? And I think I look at that game against Detroit from earlier this year. It's an overtime and he goes end to end. And my first thought in my mind is. That's Montgomery saying you got the green light where Cassidy might not have given him that much leeway to play that way in yeah. that situation. Is there anything that, I don't want to say unlocked, but is there anything that Montgomery did specifically with David Krejci that allows us to look at Krejci now and go, oh, yeah, that's the Monty touch? Yeah, I think to boil it down to its simplest terms with all of these players and uh, the, the plays that they're making and what they're doing offensively where it feels like they've been unleashed with this newest co- this new coaching staff, Jim Montgomery. I, I think to boil it down to simple terms, I, it's all about the overarching philosophy, especially with the shot. Um, with Bruce Cassidy, the last couple of years, the stress was on funneling pucks, throwing everything at the net, you know, piling up shots on net totals you know, getting them as high as they could, have it, having the course, the, uh, you know, off the charts all the time, really buying yep. into that philosophy that every shot is a good shot and every puck has to get thrown towards the net. Whereas Jim Montgomery came in and really changed that, and it became a quality over quantity philosophy offensively. He wants guys to hang on to pucks longer. He wants guys to, to make the right pass at the right time. He wants to create plays around the ice where they get shots from the slot area and from the scoring areas and the places where they want to do offensive damage. 
and, and that's a whole different sort of way of thinking offensively from what was going on before. And, you know, I'm not saying either is right or wrong, but I think certainly for some players, uh, the philosophy of, of waiting to create a really good scoring chance rather than rushing to, you know, throw everything at the net, create rebounds and sort of create chaos in the offensive zone by the shot on net and the rebound and, you know, everything that happens after that. I think some players react differently to, to each one. And certainly a guy like Krejci that relies on intelligence, playmaking, the puck being on his stick, you know, doing things with the puck in the offensive zone to, to create good scoring chances, that melds extremely well with a, a great offensive mind uh, in Jim Montgomery. You know, he, Montgomery is definitely an offensive-minded coach. I don't think there's any question about it. And I think the numbers that you've seen have borne that out. Bruce Cassidy was a good offensive defenseman in his time, but he was a defenseman. And I think there are times when he definitely would, would err on the side of caution and conservatism and defense uh, rather than offense and maybe didn't see the games uh, all the time the way that Montgomery sees it. But there are players, like you said, like Lindholm and Krejci that definitely mesh with what's being taught right now. And oh, it's, yeah. it's caused them to, to bring out the best parts of their game. But I had no doubt in my mind, though, when Krejci came back from the check that he wasn't going to miss a beat, even though he sat out the NHL for a year. Like what he brings to the table, his skill set, it's kind of ageless. You know, it's not like him losing half a step of skating speed is going to change what he does out there. He's still going to be a very effective uh, player as long as he can keep pace with everybody else in the NHL. Let me ask about David Pasternak. So hits the 40 goal plateau, third time, yawn. This guy does it every single season. <laughs> it's just what, what, wash, rinse, repeat. So, so here's the question. Yep. I think we're all of the mind hags that this is like the contract is trending towards 11 times eight, 11 million right. a season times eight years. I think we're all looking at that and saying that's where this thing is going. Uh, we all know that's the target. That's where this thing is going to end up. Um, you know, for the, you know, McAvoy got a full value deal, you know, sort of breaking the trend of players taking less with the Boston Bruins. That goes all the way back to Ray Bork. Um, And it sounds like they're going to have to do the same here with Pasternak. Any idea, you know, we all know where this is going. We all know where this is heading. We're all expecting the exact same press release. What seems to be the holdup? Well, I think part of it is, the Bruins sort of trying to figure out what their forecast is going to be after they start paying him $11 million a year and, you know, trying to get a team together that's going to be competitive uh, while having a lot of questions uh, next season, you know, uh, if they do have this big $11 million cap hit for Pasternak and they have another one that's nine plus for uh McAvoy, that's $20 million for two players uh, on the cap. And, and you know, I, I, the Bruins, I think, before, they, I don't think they they really did not want to go to the 11. I, you know, I feel like they were one of those teams that buys into this philosophy uh, in the NHL, the salary cap right now, that you're not going to be able to win a cup if yeah. you pay any. Um, you know, you just can't build a deep enough lineup and you can't uh, have a sustainable lineup under the cap that's going to be able to win if you start giving out double-digit millions per year uh, to any of your players. So, you know, but I think they know that they're going to have to pay for a, a brilliant, dynamic, game-breaking force like Pasternak. Like, that, that, that he brings the rarest skill to the table and in bucket yep. loads. So you're going to have to pay him. And not only that, it's not only the numbers he puts up, but it's the entertainment value for the fans. And it's the charisma of the player. And it's everything across the board that, you know, he's one of those players in the NHL, you will pay money to watch play, you know, and, and that is an invaluable uh, talent, if you want to call it that. Uh, but I think it, it's when you look at the Bruins landscape going forward, if they're paying Pasternak $11 million a year, they do not have a lot of salary cap space next year to fill a bunch of different holes that they're going to have in the lineup, including uh, yep. David Krejci and Patrice Bergeron, uh, who took cap-friendly deals this year are not signed for next year. And not only that, but there's going to be millions of dollars in, in salary cap penalties that the Bruins are going to have to pay out next year uh, for the incentive-laden oh, deals yeah. that they signed this year. Yeah, so, you know, th- there's, there's, I think, a lot of calculations as trying to get their ducks in a row, making a trade or signing a player or, you know, signing players to contracts to make sure that they have – 
you know, a core enough group signed under the cap next year that they can live with $11 million for Pasternak. And, like, I think this trade deadline factors into it. You know, can they make a trade for somebody and then come in and sign them to a reasonable deal, potentially, uh, that's going to fit into the puzzle of everything else that's going on here. You know, what are they going to do with Connor Clifton, who is having an excellent year, is a UFA after this year, um, and is going to get paid because he's he's having a very good season. And, you know, what are they going to do with that defenseman spot? Like, there's a lot of questions right now, and I think they have swirling around their heads in addition to signing Pasternak. And I think that's the biggest sort of, hurdle is just making sure once they sign him they're going to be able to ice the team that they think is going to be you know stanley cup competitive um but like at the day i'm with you and, and when people bump uh, into me in the street and, and ask me like when's pasta going to sign or what's he going to sign for i said <laughs> we've all known for a long time what pasta is going to sign for in the nhl you know what they're going to make it's yeah. just a matter of when they're going to pull the trigger Right. Uh, last one here for you. We got about sixty seconds for this one, Hags. Um, Vladislav Gavrikov. Um, we're all. I mean, we talk about you know expectations of what the Pasternak contract is going to look like, and we have a let's just say strong suspicion um, that right now it looks like the landing pad will be Boston, but they need to do some cap maneuvering to get there. Uh, are you yep. on the, the the side of the fence that says, you know what, Boston just needs to clean up the cap situation here a little bit, maybe make a move, and then Gavrikov is you know going to join the Boston Bruins mix here? Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of where I was getting at with the, the question about Pasternak because I think they're trying to make a deal now that's going to make sense for them yeah. cap-wise now and in the future as far as clearing out some cap space, as far as doing what they have to do. Uh, you know, both now and, and moving forward uh, to get where they need to go and to potentially maybe bring in a defenseman, you know, that could be part of the, the picture moving forward and, and addresses the depth situation that they're going to need right now. You know, everybody's wanted to, uh, all these different forwards and big names and Patrick Kane and all this stuff for the Bruins. It's been obvious to me for a long time they need a defenseman. They need a depth on defense they have a bunch of guys, um, largely Brandon Carlo and Matt Grizzlick, but they have other guys that get hurt a lot, especially in the playoffs. They have to have insurance policies for a team that has Stanley, big-time Stanley Cup aspirations this year. So Gavrikov yeah. makes a ton of sense. The other part of it, though, is in my colleague Jimmy Murphy's reporting this, Mason Lowry is the guy, the Ohio State defenseman, that they might want in an exchange, and that's a big ask for a rental like mm. Gavrikov uh, going to Boston. For sure. But we could be talking about a cup, Hags. We could be talking about a cup here. Um, listen, it's right. uh, got to be a fun team to cover. A lot of dynamic personalities and the expectation that it goes deep. Uh, always appreciate you popping by, pal. You're one of my favorites. You be well. Thank you, Merrick. You too, buddy. Always a pleasure. There he is, uh, the great Joe Haggerty, joining me talking about the Boston Bruins, uh, the situation with Gavrikov, and the situation with Pasternak as well, Haggerty writing for Boston Hockey Now. We turn our attention, speaking of the Boston Bruins, uh, mortal enemies, um, the Montreal Canadiens, who right now, as Eric Engels has documented in a really wonderful piece at sportsnet.ca, rebuilding, pretty much ripping out the guts of the organization and rebuilding it. Had a suspicion that when Jeff Gordon took over, this would be one of the orders of business um and it's well underway uh, eric angles who penned the piece joins me now eric how are you today pal what's up jeff uh not so much just um listen first of all encouraging everyone to read this piece i know a lot of work like months and months and months uh went into to putting this piece together so bravo um take a victory lap have a bow it's excellent um before people who haven't already read this, go to do so at sportsnet.ca. Um, your sit down with Jeff Gordon's a fascinating one and how he's, you know, looking to rebuild essentially the guts of the Montreal Canadiens organization. First of all, how did you approach this, you know, conversation with Gordon and, you know, documenting exactly what Montreal is doing right now? Yeah, well, it kind of really goes back to a year ago. I had done a lot of research and kind of reporting to different people inside and outside the organization on kind of where the holes were, where, where Mark Bergman had left off and where Jake, Jeff Gordon was taking over. And I wrote a big piece last year after my first interview with Jeff Gordon um, just about how, you know, here's a guy that everybody assumes was tapped to rebuild the hockey team. But given his experience in New York and Boston was was also very suited to rebuild the organization where they had kind of fallen short and been coasting on their reputation as this 
supposed New York Yankees of hockey. You know, like you, you, it's a hard reputation to live up to. Um, and I think the Canadians did a pretty good job yeah. for decades and decades. But it's easy to let things slip when things like the pandemic present a stress test. And, you know, they ended up failing in some departments when that happened. And it was clear that, you know, Jeff Gordon and bringing on Kent Hughes and those two guys together, they didn't just spend their time talking to players, you know, in the lead up to last year's trade trade deadline on, you know, what, what what's your intentions and would you like to stay or would you like to go? And they, they canvassed their players to find out where they were falling short and where they could do better. Jeff Gordon was hired to begin with to bulk up on development and analytics and a lot of other places where the Canadians needed to modernize. Um, that was a mandate that Jeff Molson spelt out very clearly. But, you know, after I wrote that piece last year and kind of exposed some of the places where they were falling short, I knew that this year I'd have to do a follow-up. So I scheduled, uh, with the cooperation of the Canadians, another interview with Gordon in late November. And then from there was really taking what he said and fact-checking it, making sure that, you know, as encouraged as he feels about the progress they've made, that's, that's supported by players, by prospects, by other people in the organization, by people who know what's going on with them. And so that I could kind of come up with the comprehensive piece that came out yesterday. I appreciate the kudos. Uh, like they say, uh, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, but uh, no, I was happy that <laughs> to finally get this, uh, to get this piece out there. Cause there was, there was months of work that went into it for sure. What, what what do you think the um the heaviest lifting has been for Gordon as as he as he pieces this thing back together again? Because I, I I do I do like the way you phrased it with you know the New York Yankees of hockey and rest on the laurels and things can get things can get missed and you just have certain expectations and a certain reputation that I understand like you're the Montreal Canadiens you can kind of surf on the rep for for a lot of years as things continue to slide. What do you think the heaviest lift here was for Gordon? I think it's twofold, Jeff, and it's continual. Like the first part really is they could have hired guys just to check those boxes that were unchecked, right? So, you know, one of the things he said to me last year when we first sat down, we don't even have a skills coach, which is pretty standard across the league, right? I mean, he wasn't, that wasn't a revelation. We knew that the Canadians didn't have a skills coach. Um, He could have hired just anybody to do skills. And you see some of the videos coming out from other teams and what they're doing in skills and they've fallen behind where the Canadians ended up going with it. You know, they the Canadians ended up hiring Adam Nicholas, who was consulting with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And even when, when Nicholas was with the Maple Leafs, you know, he was doing more of that nitty gritty skills work versus more of the development stuff. So they hired Adam Nicholas mm-hmm. to build out development plans for every single player in the organization. And it's really based on a lot of data and, and dashboard that he created to have, to, to, to evaluate player strengths and to get a much more focused development path for those players to play to their strengths. You know, we always think about development in terms of how do you work on your weaknesses? Every player knows what their limitations are. Um, they know they have to work on those things. The big question, you know, you often hear, oh, you know, I'll take a player who does everything well or a player who does one thing specifically well that can mitigate, you know, those other deficiencies yeah. that they might have and justify his place. Well, how do you get that player to get to that strength as much as possible so that when they come up, they have that place and they can seize it and they can grow? Um, Because you can always work on your deficiencies. That's like a nonstop process. All to say, you know, like I said, the heavy lifting part was not just finding people to check the boxes, finding the best people that take them ahead of the curve from behind it. And Adam Nicholas, without question, is that type of person, especially if you peruse some social media of some other teams or what they're doing from skills where they've fallen behind. You know, like I think in analytics where the Canadians were outsourcing analytics, um, you know, under Mark Bergman and that regime, and so they, they were still using them, but it wasn't in-house and, and a vital, uh, it wasn't embedded in every fiber of hockey operations. Who did they hire? Christopher Boucher was a pioneer in analytics and the guy who was, you know, behind sport logic success and has worked with NHL teams and speaks the NHL lingo and not just, you know, data scientist kind of lingo. He can connect with every tentacle. The second part of the heavy lifting is harmonizing all these different things, right? You, you, they brought in people in team services to bulk up, you know, the food at the practice facility to what they get on the road to nutrition. A tr- nutritionist is now a consultant for the team that's uh, really top of the line. They have a mental health, uh, they have a mental performance coach that they brought on who's worked with, you know, 17 medalists at the Olympics and Super Bowl champions. And bringing all these things in is one aspect 
harmonizing them and having them work together is another and that's that's why i say it's a continuous process but they've come so far from where they were a year ago and a year and a half ago when jeff gordon took over you know, and I, I like the um, because you mentioned Chris Boucher there a, a, a second ago, and listen, we all like Sport Logic's reputation is is well earned and, and well known by now. Um, and I, I like the, the the part of the piece where where Gorton points out that you have all these different departments all working in harmony, whether it's you know Boucher or the scouts and you know uh, McMillan. Um, you know, as a, as a data data analyst, it all sort of came together, and maybe the first, maybe the first byproduct that we saw, or the first result that we saw, was Montreal taking Yuri Slavkovsky first overall at the draft. I thought that was a really, for your piece, Eric. I think that that was one of the most important paragraphs in the entire thing because it's, you know, it's what, what's the old saying, from the root to the fruit, right? Like here's the hard work, and boom, here's the horse that's coming out of the barn. Yeah, and, and as a derivative of that comes a process, finally, right? Like a new way of operating from a hockey operations standpoint. You know, they, they went through this exhaustive process. They, they knew for a very long time that they were going to have the first overall choice from when they found out to when they actually made the pick. Um, you think about that whole process and the specifics of last year's draft where really there wasn't a lead horse, right? Like you could have gone in a couple of different directions, and we'll find out in five years if, you know, the Canadians got it right or if somebody in the second round got it right. That's how up in the air that whole draft was. But I could tell you that, like, if you're in their position, they're thinking of it as the biggest decision they could ever make. And so it was such an exhaustive process from them, and they involved so many different voices in it, from all their amateur scouts and the people who viewed them the most to coming up Kent. Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon coming up with their own opinions based on hundreds of viewings, video or live in person, um, to then bringing all the information that they collect within those scouting meetings and their own perceptions to analytics for support, uh, and then bringing it back to the table and like, who's going to raise their hand and say, are you guys on the same wavelength or against what we're thinking? They, they really beat it to death before making their choice, and they still don't know if it's the right one. But the most important thing that happened there was they created a process that they can carry forward and trust was established between analytics and between scouting and between, you know, now, you know, as Gordon described in the piece yeah. and in our interview, they, the amateur scouts out in Saskatoon or wherever are calling up and like, what about this guy who's unranked? What does the data say about him? What can you find out? What can you give us? When you have that kind of collaborative effort, that is to me at the uh, foundation of healthy, modern, organizational think and take it outside of hockey. Like all of our organizations, mm. even whether it's Rogers Sportsnet or Bell Media or whoever you want to go to or major corporations like car companies, right. we have, it's so easy to get into our silos, our different verticals. And the ones that function... <laughs> no, the, no, yeah, the that ones, never happens the ones, there. I don't know what you're talking ones, about. And, and every now and then you see corporate restructuring and you see all these things happen. And, and inevitably, the goal is always the same. It's, it's to harmonize and bring everything together. And if you achieve that harmony, well, then you start to have success. I, I think the Toronto Maple Leafs are uh, you know, probably at the forefront going back five, six years of that type of process happening in hockey. There were some teams like the Canadians behind where the guy at the top had a very small circle of trust and didn't go outside of it. And then it got smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. Now you really have to lean. You, you put the best people in place. You better be willing to lean on them and, and have them work together. And that's a process now that the Canadians the, are undergoing that all these people are there. The, the, the key for all of that is, you know, you use the word trust. And I, I think that that is a, I think trust is a byproduct of stability on top. And I, I think that, you know, you're with, a, with an organization, you know, pick a hockey team and you continually see, you know, every two years there's a new manager or every two years there's a new coach as a new president of hockey operations. When there's that type of instability on top, I think what, it, what happens naturally is an inherent mistrust of leadership. And I think that's when people start to silo themselves off because it's 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 self it's self preservation, right, Eric? It's like, look, I don't know what's happening on top. It's chaos. It keeps changing. I just need to protect my own little turf. I think with the Montreal Canadiens, 
And listen, this goes all the way, obviously, up to the to the top, even above Jeff Gordon here, to right away, right away to Jeffrey Molson. You see a stability, right? And you see the stability with Jeff Gordon. He's going nowhere. Kent Hughes is going nowhere. So I think that inherently trust, you know, sort of, you know, fe- feeds down through all the different veins and through all the different tentacles here. And and this is the this leads me to the final question for you, which is. How do the Montreal Canadiens, maybe they don't even care, but how do the Montreal Canadiens want to be seen at the end of this entire process? Like, I think of a team like the New Jersey Devils, you know, who are always like, we want to be considered the smartest team in the NHL. Like, we're being led by our brains. We're being led by the data, et cetera, et cetera. How does Montreal want to be seen through all of this? Which sounds weird because we've always just looked at Montreal and said, well, that's the place where they do things perfectly. How, in this new era of revolutionizing the front office, how does Montreal want to be seen? As going, as going, as as being ahead of where hockey's going, you know, like, and and as yeah. building and crafting a plan and following through on it, and and when you have to call an audible, it's not so far outside of the box that you put yourself in. You know what I mean? Like you you have the contingencies mm-hmm. in place that it's still congruent with your actual philosophy and how you're trying to build. Um, you know, they've come in here and promised to build something that they believe can sustain success over time, no matter how much time it takes to build, they have the patience and wherewithal to be able to do that. And so that's how they want to be seen that they're not going to deviate, um, because, uh, the apple's dangling right in front of them. One thing I just want to touch right. on Jeff, because it really came to my yep. mind as you were talking about trust and all that stuff. The other factor is ego. Um, I think back to when Jeff Molson made the decision to hire Jeff Gordon. And I think about how we all perceived that move initially. And I remember Jeff Molson saying, you guys may not understand this today, but you will. And, and on that day, what we all thought was he had had a really crafty way of circumventing the whole GM needs to be Francophone and, and French speaking uh, thing. And that, yep. you know, whoever would come in as GM would be, uh, you know, Jeff Gordon's puppet. Um, I think that was the pervasive thinking, uh, and, and logically so, just based on how that whole thing went down. But what he had said that day was, you, this is a job for two people, and I want two collaborative leaders at the top of it, and you guys will understand in time. And now, like a year and a half later, we fully understand, seeing how Jeff Gordon and Kent Hughes operate in Marty St. Louis, and you think about trust being built and leadership, Think about those three guys specifically and how they've cast their egos aside and created that kind of collaborative environment. You know, I, I, I talk to a lot of people mm-hmm. outside of Montreal to, to be able to shape my opinions on their organization. There's a lot of people across the league that believe these guys will will do everything the right way to put themselves in position to win. Whether or not they actually get it done comes down to so many different factors that are probably beyond their control. But there are a lot of people, and, and Jeff, you speak to people all across the National Hockey League that look at what's happening here and say, these guys are doing things the right way. And I think my piece, you know, was naturally going to set up to make them look good because obviously they had so far to go in terms of those things that were reported. But it also reinforces sure. that they have a, a plan that that absolutely could bear fruit. The piece is excellent. Encourage everyone to read it. Sportsnet.ca, how the Montreal Canadiens have taken steps uh, to modernize the franchise. Eric Engels has been my guest. Eric, thanks as always, pal. You be good. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. Eric Engels from Sportsnet.ca. And and by the way, um, part of all of it, too, you really got to give it to Montreal Canadiens fans who have looked at this as you know a lot of teams are skeptical about will the fan base hang around when we go through a process the likes of which Montreal is going through I know it's easier when you get things like the first overall pick but um, listen man I've said it before half jokingly um, there's no such thing as the original six there's an original one the Montreal Canadiens and everybody else is an expansion team I know I like to say that one tongue-in-cheek, but like, there's a history that you draw upon here when you're doing anything with the Montreal Canadiens, and I know there's a sensitivity if you want to try to move the thing 
an inch to the left or an inch to the right because you're worried that the fan base will explode. So far, the Montreal fan base has been cool with pretty much all the moves here uh, by Hughes and Gorton. Taking a break, getting on the Philadelphia Flyers page with uh, Gianna Hahn here in a couple of moments. Big win last night for the Flyers. We'll see what they have up their sleeves tonight. No shortage of issue with any team that's coached by John Tortorella, and we saw that yesterday with the scratching of Travis Sanheim. The Flyers are next. We're talking orange. Merrick Show continues. Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So a uh, very tidy win yesterday by the Philadelphia Flyers over the Calgary Flames. But this is a John Tortorella coach team. So there has to be, as there always is with torts, more to the story. Whether it's scratched players, reduced ice time for key players, an injury, uh, a superstar, a goaltender perhaps in the waiting. All of these things apply to yesterday. Uh, Gianna Hahn covers the Philadelphia Flyers for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She joins me now. Gianna, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, the, the, the pleasure is mine. First of all, um, outside of the game, the big headline happened before, and you could see right away in warm-up where... <laughs> Travis Sanheim had, as we like to refer to in the business, boo-boo face uh, as he was taking warm-up, strongly believing that he knew before warm-up that he wasn't going to play. I believe he had 16 tickets out for family and friends. He played junior hockey in Calgary. Was this one a long time coming? Like, was this just an inevitability that that he was headed for, for Scratchville, as others have under John Tortorella? Yes. In a way, I can understand why he was scratched. I think the question is, why did it have to be that specific game? Um, he had made yeah. some mistakes in the game before, but he'd also played more minutes than everyone else. Um, other players had made mistakes. So, yeah, I could see him heading for scratch, as you call it, just based on the way we know sports likes the coach. But at the same time, like everyone knew he had family there. So um, whether it was that game or this game, just – it's definitely an interesting choice to have chosen that game. Yeah, we've, you know, Tortorella's a fascinating guy. And one of the things, and listen, we've seen it. You're right there to, to, to follow on a, on a day-to-day basis. You know this better than me. Um, on the one hand, like he knows when to use the stick and he knows when to use the carrot. And I think of a player like Cam York at the beginning of the season, you know, didn't make the, the team out of camp and was sent down to Lehigh. And, you know, Tortorella was pretty strong in, in condemning in condemning Cam York. But after the, what was it, like 30 games playing in the American Hockey League, he comes up and all of a sudden it's, it's flowers and sunshine and glowing praises like... Tortorella is a really interesting case study in, you know, veteran coaches and and how to handle young players, how to handle any players for that matter. Do you think this is just another situation where John Tortorella is kind of saying and reminding everybody that, you know, a pat on the back is about, you know, two feet away from a kick in the ass, and he likes to use both liberally, if you catch my drift? For sure. We've definitely seen that a lot this season. You know, he's, um, he's a fascinating guy, and the Flyers are a fascinating team. Um, first of all, Joel, Joel Farabee. Now, we wondered if Farabee was headed towards a scratch today when you look at the ice time yesterday, just over three minutes uh, for Farabee. But the, um, you know, the, uh, the injury yesterday, and it's really too bad because, you know, um, there's, there's a situation here with the Philadelphia Flyers where, you know, we're talking about two Travises essentially here. And when you look at Joel Farabee's numbers and you say to yourself, okay, he might be scratched, all of a sudden the Travis Konechny injury may relieve John Tortorella from having to scratch Farabee. How do you read his situation right now in, in light of the Travis Konechny injury? If Torts wanted to really make a statement, I don't think he would hesitate because he does have 
another. He isn't a forward in the wings. He could also do seventh defenseman again. Um, but it is interesting if he was only going to play him that much because his numbers have been steadily decreasing. His ice time has been going down. So if he's headed in that direction, um, why put him in the lineup if you're not going to play him at all? It just makes it harder for the rest of the team, right? Because you have a shortened bench rather than some people you can throw out there. But that being said, he also doesn't seem to trust, trust the other forwards he has up. Um, Ula Lutzel is doing great in AHL, but he just started playing North American game. He's very much a pupil right now. And towards mm-hmm. hasn't been super impressed with Kiefer Bellas much time, and he'll say, oh, I haven't seen enough of him, but then he doesn't give him time. Um, but it just doesn't seem like yeah. there's trust there. So on one hand, it's like, yeah, I keep Joel Fairby in as a body, but on the other, he played him three minutes, which really just doesn't help the team out at, at all. But Joel definitely this whole season has just, is, other than very brief flashes, looks like a very different player than what we saw last year. And now I didn't see him in his uh, peak right before the injuries of last year. But even last year, I felt like there was mm-hmm. more explosiveness, uh, more flashes of what he could be. And this year, it just seems like he's been very quiet and not noticeable. You know, one of the um, one of the bright spots this season, and we saw it yesterday, and now he's strung together six uh, straight wins. Um, Sammy Erson, uh, the netminder. I remember talking to someone at Lehigh Valley at the beginning of the season who said, "We really think we have something here. We really think we hit on someone in the fifth round. Uh, we think we've we've plucked the gem here in in Sammy Erson." Um, what do you make of, of, of Sammy Erson? I know we haven't exactly had a lot of runway to make up our minds on Erson yet. I know it's only, you know, a handful of games that we've seen him at the NHL level. Um, but what's the word around Philadelphia about Erson? Like, this is, I don't think this is fool's gold, although I don't also think that he's going to be a bona fide superstar anytime soon. What's the, what's the organization feel about Erson right now? Yeah, he definitely has a very interesting story. My coworker Olivia did a piece on him and talked to his goalie coach, and it's amazing how he was really just found because they went to look at Sandstrom and saw him as well. Um, but he impressed me personally early just with his attitude. Um, when he was in training camp for the Flyers, he was saying that, like, you know, even if he gets sent down to the AHL, he's not worried about it because he knows he has to get back into it. Like, he's got a really good head on his shoulders. Um, but obviously yeah. because of injuries, we didn't get to see that much of him. Um, and he impressed so much in training camp. And then the word on the street from the Phantoms is that they think they have something more than just simply a backup down there. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a small sample size, but I know he's really earned towards his confidence. I know that towards is very clear when he went down this past time, it was not his decision. It was mm-hmm. simply because of paperwork. So I know that he has a lot of confidence, and even the players were telling me last night that it doesn't feel like they have a a rookie goal back there when he's playing. You know, I mentioned Travis connecting a couple of seconds ago and, you know, uh, left yesterday's game. Is there any update today on Connect yet? I haven't seen one yet. Well, we actually just landed in Edmonton. We're on our way to our hotel right now. They're skating, but we are not there for it just because of the way the flights worked out and the delays. So don't really have an update. I briefly saw him last night. He looked like he was moving normally, but someone else saw him and said he was in a swing. Uh, I couldn't see it from the angle that I passed him by, but um, really not sure because it kind of just looks like he gotten the wind knocked out of him but then he didn't come back because if that was the case Mm. he would have come back so um i will say they're definitely being pretty careful with injuries this year though so we'll have an update for you later right before the game perfect um one final thing here you know we're all we got about 60 seconds for this one um I think we're all expecting James Van Riemsdyk to go at some point um, in advance of trade deadline. But other than James Van Riemsdyk, do you think it's going to be a noisy or a quiet deadline for the Philadelphia Flyers? That's really a good question. Hard to speculate just because um, they seem to say one thing and then do the other. Keeping Chuck, through, Chuck Fletcher through the trade deadline, in which case I want to anticipate it being that big of a move. Um, but there are definitely a lot of right. candidates for trades. However, um, this also is probably more of a 
buyer's market than a seller's market. So that might limit the flyers and what they're Mm -hmm. trying to do. But I think the real key is they have to clarify how, where they want to go moving forward. And they have to either commit to a sort of rebuild or really, really commit to winning now because they're just sitting right in the middle right now and not making any decision moves either way. Yeah. Tough, uh, tough spot to be in. Maybe the worst, uh, some have argued. Um, John, I wish I had more time uh, up against it. Thanks so much for stopping by. It's the Flyers and the Oilers tonight, 9 o'clock Eastern. You can watch this one on Sportsnet West. Gianna, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. Have a good one. Gianna Hahn uh, covers the Philadelphia Flyers. We're always one of the more intriguing teams uh, around the NHL. She works for the Philadelphia Inquirer. It is the Flyers and the Oilers later on this evening. Also, Blackhawks and Golden Knights, Sportsnet 1. Watch that one. Sportsnet Pacific, it's the Canucks and Preds. Something's going on with Nashville. I don't know what it is, but something's going on with Nashville. I know David Poyle has tried to walk back a little bit some comments from last week, but something's going on. Also on Eastern Ontario tonight is the Red Wings and the Capitals as Detroit starts to leapfrog teams. Today would go a long way. Um, the big thank yous for the day, as always, Matt Marchese, our producer, Lance Kennedy, and Jen Rolnick, all of our guests, Friedman, Mendez, Haggerty Angles, and Han. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Merrick Show back on the air tomorrow at noon.